Let's turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 10, once again, Hebrews 10. Our subject today generally is going to be sanctification. More fully, I'll call it God's salvific will and our complete sanctification. Today will be what we call a panoptic or a panoramic view of the subject of sanctification, and I think it will be to our great edification today by the grace of God and because Brian's prayer will be, as always, effective. Phil, Brian, and Phil this morning, I've had this vision, I keep having this vision, it's of a giant book, and on the front it says the Brian Messick Study Bible. So, we'll see. Can it be? Could it be? Today's subject reminds me invariably, and every time I teach on this, I think of this memory that I had in one of our many trips to the mission for mission conferences in various places in Europe and one in South America. I remember a porter baggage porter at one of the airports saw us there and we were witnessing to quite a few people and he said to me personally he said are you saved and he had that flame in his eyes like you know he probably just came from a Pentecostal church and I said yes I am and then he said but are you sanctified and he said it just like that now I just had this verse, I've been, I was teaching Hebrews way back then I think too, I had this verse in mind and I said, yes I am, just like that, so I am sanctified. And this is God's salvific will in our complete sanctification. A couple of verses first from the Pauline epistles, partial verses anyways from the unbreakable word, but from him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus. That's God's will. It's God's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes, our enlightened eyes. From him, God, you are in Christ Jesus. Really had nothing to do with you. Had everything to do with his eternal love. But it goes on to say, from him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, and among the four things it says, sanctification. So yes, I'm sanctified. So are you. And then another passage that came to mind, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, when I got up to edit this morning, I cut off giant sections of things I prepared because I, I know for sure, because he awakens my he wakens my ear morning by morning, as Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, and I know sanctification was the focus. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, the first half. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So how do we reconcile these two things? We do so in a panoptic of the doctrine, a panoramic view of the doctrine of sanctification. Christ has become, Messiah Jesus has become for us sanctification. And this is the will of God, your sanctification. One seems to be a fact of the eternal present, the other seems to be a futuristic will of God. Sanctification, it's 
the big word in Hebrews as justification was in Romans. Sanctification, like justification, is a salvific reality. Now we remember that word, salvific, saving, salvational reality. Justification, by definition, is the status of mankind before God. Thanks entirely to the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ, to the universally salvific will of God, his Father. Like justification, sanctification is a salvific reality, a reality of salvation. And salvation is of the Lord. Justification is our status before God. When I say our status, I mean the status of all mankind thanks to the obedience of Jesus Christ alone. We know this from Romans 5.18 and other places. Like justification, sanctification is a salvific reality. Justification, however, is our status before God in Christ. Sanctification is our status for God in Christ. Justification, our status before God in Christ. Sanctification is our status for God in Christ Jesus. Sanctification, therefore, embraces our vocation. And by vocation, I mean as a kingdom of priests, a household of priests, worshipers of God in spirit and truth. That is our vocation. And as his Holy Spirit-powered witnesses. And so sanctification has three tenses. Unlike justification, sanctification can be viewed in three tenses and therefore three senses. We have been sanctified and thus we have sanctification through the first appearance of our great archpriest. We will be sanctified completely at the parousia, the appearing of Jesus Christ, or when our great archpriest makes his second appearance with salvation. Put those two concepts together in Hebrews 9.26, his first appearance when he put away sin, his second appearance when he comes without sin with salvation. Another way of saying this is that sanctification has to do with the radical alteration of the human situation brought about by God in Christ at the first appearing of our great archpriest. God brought about a radical alteration of the human situation, one that's not observable except by faith, one that is not seen or observed except in a small remnant of people called those who believe, and that only in part. And then at the first appearing of our great archpriest, the radical alteration of the human situation occurred. At the second appearing of our great archpriest, there will be a radical alteration of the human condition that will be observable, it will be experienced, it will be through resurrection and through the salvific subordination of all creation under his nail-scarred feet.
Now, that's a part of the panorama. That's our sanctification wrought by God in Christ in his first appearing. Our complete sanctification, that we're going to look at a little more clearly, body, soul, and spirit happens in the alteration of our condition at his second appearing. But what about TIB, the time in between? The time in between. That is when we are told to pursue sanctification. Pursue it. And the word dioko is used there. Dioko means to pursue with the zeal of a persecutor. In other words, make it your aim. Pursue practical sanctification, we could say. And so in the time in between these two radical salvific alterations, during the interval of Jesus Christ's second coming again, if you remember that, he has three comings again. He comes in his incarnation and offers himself without spot to God. He takes away the sin of the world. He comes again first in resurrection, his coming again in resurrection. He comes again a second time, as it were, in the Holy Spirit. That is now where we experience him in the spirit of Jesus Christ. He comes in a third coming again in what's called the parousia, or his coming to stay, in which he instigates the new creation of all things and the restoration of all things. And that's what we're waiting for. And so God's will is that we pursue practical sanctification. That is, our vocation to which we have been set apart by God. So the rest of the verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, not quite as popular, is that this is the will of God, our sanctification, and that we keep ourselves distant from sexual immorality. And people say, now why'd you have to throw that in there? Well, because it's in there. You can't be doing both. You can't be fulfilling the vocation God puts you in through sanctification and engaging in any form of sexual immorality. The two don't meet. The two can't connect. And so there is a practical sanctification. That's the whole verse. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of calls today, and I agree with them. There's calls that say that the church should be calling attention to the evils of our time, and I agree. I also agree that the church failed to do so as the Third Reich approached in Germany. The church avoided doing so. And so, even though I'm not a political person, I realize that as a pastor who proclaims the word of God, I must call attention to political evils, social evils, moral evils of our time, or else I'm not fully doing the job. And there's a lot of that going around today. There's political evil, a tyrannical power in play. There is cooperation with belligerent nations who desire our demise. There is, an there is a moral breakdown, and it is obvious. And there is a woke culture that is altogether and thoroughly, without any exceptions, evil. There is 
people who say we support our trans kids, which means they support the mutilation of children, just like they did in the days of Moloch when they presented their children to be sacrificed. There's a lot of evil going around, but it's my intention first and foremost to draw attention to the evil of those who are calling attention to evil who have an evil false gospel. We have to address the evil of a false gospel first, a gospel that does not accentuate nor does it even mention the universally salvific mercy of God in Christ Jesus, does not recognize the radical, eschatological, permanent alteration of the human situation in Christ Jesus from enmity to reconciliation, does not recognize the full and true gospel, does not glorify Jesus Christ, and yet wants to call attention to the evils of the world around us. And so, today, we will teach the truth in an unvarnished way by the grace of God and to the praise of God. Sanctification appears in the Holy Scriptures in association with the salvific will of God. Sanctification and God's will are together, always. It's always God's will. And the doing of that will to the point of completion by none other than Jesus Christ. Sanctification is God's will. But most primarily, it is the will of God as performed by none other than Jesus Christ. He's even the subject of doing the will of God when we are told to do the will of God. He is the subject, for we only do the will of God as God is in us willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Sanctification is also intimately linked with the main idea in Hebrews called completion. Hebrews, like 56 of the Psalms, is about completion. 56 of the Psalms in the Greek text begin with estotelos, which means regarding completion. We could put that at the heading of Hebrews also. It's about completion. And we will find that practical self sanctification in the time between the two great alterations involves our doing of the will of God. After you have done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. Thankfully, our doing of the will of God involves a thing called pistis, faith, what must we do to do the works of God, they said to Jesus. And he said, believe on the one whom God has sent. That's the will and the work of God. Faith becomes a pretty big deal in Hebrews. In fact, I've been toying with something in the scripture that I'll introduce. I'll just give you a, a wedding of the appetite, let's say. There are 24 times between Hebrews 10.39 and 10 and 1139, where the word faith is used. Usually, at least 18 times, it's piste, P-I-S-T-E-I, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. 24 times. 
And in the book of Revelation, there are 24 elders, and they're called presbyteroi, 24 elders whose thrones are around the throne of God. And Jesus stands in the midst of the 24 elders. And it's interesting that when Hebrews introduces the subject of faith, that it says, by faith, the presbyteroi, same word as in four times at least in Revelation, the presbyteroi, the 24 presbyteroi, 24 times faith is related to presbyteroi in Hebrews 11. Elders, men and women, who gained personal attestation of their faith by God. That's just a little thing to throw in there. I thought I'd do that. Now, with this in mind, let's consider the passage in Hebrews, which has caught our attention most recently. Hebrews 10, this is my translation again, with a little bit of expansion. Hebrews 10:5. This is why, coming into the world... Remember, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Coming into the world, he, Christ Jesus, says, sacrifice and offering is not what you willed, speaking to God the Father, but you've made a body for me. That's the incarnation. You're not pleased with holocausts and offerings for sin. Then I said, Jesus speaking, Look, I've come in the scroll of the book, it's written about me, to do, O God, your will. Then in verse 8, in the text above where he said sacrifices and offerings and holocausts, those are burnt offerings, offerings for sin, you have not willed, that is, those offered according to the law. He then says, now the author slams this home again. Another hammer blow on the nail. He then says, look, I've come to do your will. Thus, he abolishes the first. That is what God does not ultimately will, the system of sacrifices under the Levitical order, to establish the second, which is what God does will, what he ultimately wills. By which will, this is the verse I was thinking of when the porter asked me if I was sanctified, by which will we have been sanctified. Now that, in the Greek, it reads, we have been and are completely sanctified. The reason, there's really three reasons. I say completely sanctified because this is the idea due to the perfect tense that's employed here for the verb hagiazo. You'll see that in print. Secondly, it's because of the divine passive voice where God performs the action of our complete sanctification through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And thirdly, because of that word that closes off this sentence, ephapax, once and for all. So verse 10, by which will, God's universally salvific will, we know, we have been and are completely sanctified once and for all. That is our situation. Whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we live up to it or not, that is just like reconciliation is our situation. Whether we recognize it or not, 
All people are in the light of God, whether they acknowledge it or not. And all people have Jesus as Lord. He's already the Lord of every person. Whether a person acknowledges it or not, they got a big surprise coming. He is the head of every man, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 11. And unpopularly, it says the man is the head of the woman. Uh-oh. Time to crucify the pastor. Well, I'm sure there's some screaming hoot owls on early morning TV that would love to do that anyways, but I don't want to call attention to that particular evil of witches around a cauldron in a show called, I can't remember, something about a panorama or a view of something or other. Anyways, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, sanctification and God's will come together in Hebrews as they do in Paul's epistles. And we can see this, and in fact, this is what I cut out of today, a massive block of doctrine I cut out. If you compare Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 with Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Hopefully we'll look at that connection further on up the road because it's really good. Look at, you can do it on your own. You can look at where the word will, the will of God is found in Ephesians 1, 3 to 11 and then compare it to where the will of God is found in Hebrews 5 through 10, and you'll, or 10, 5 through 10. And you'll see a pretty extraordinary thing about the universally saving will of God is that which Jesus did in his meritorious obedience when he merited, obe merited by his obedience the salvation of all mankind for all time and all places and times. But 1 Thessalonians 5, speaking of completion, the will of God and sanctification, complete sanctification, consider 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May the God of peace, called that in Hebrews 13.20, the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the same name applied to him here. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. Now that's speaking of something that's yet to come or that is occurring, it's another tense. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. Now, this is a word, it's called a hapax legomena, a once only used term in all the New Testament. It's a word for completely that's called holoteles. It has the word T-E-L, that famous T-E-L word in the middle of it which is so famous in Hebrews. But may the God of peace, I just noticed that just now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely, holoteles, and preserve you intact, or as a friend of ours from Chicago would say, intact. Preserve you intact, spirit, soul, and body. Now, we're talking here about the complete sanctification of the body, which is only accomplished by a thing called resurrection, bodily resurrection. May the God of peace sanctify you completely and preserve you, spirit, soul, and body, to the parousia. That's where he uses the word explicitly. That's what we call the third coming again, which is the sum of all hoped-for events in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of hoped-for events. 
all hoped for events find their culmination in the parousia of Jesus Christ, his coming, where he will be visible to every eye and all flesh will experience his salvation. So may the God of peace sanctify you completely and preserve you intact, spirit, soul, and body to the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. That refers to the second appearing of our great archpriest. Now, Hebrews 10.10 again, by which will we have been and are. The perfect tense means we have been by God's divine action and we are in the situation or the status of sanctification through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Ephapex. Now, as Jesus evoked the Eucharist on the eve of his self-sacrifice for us, Jesus said this, this is my body, which is being given for you, in Luke twenty-two nineteen. On the same occasion, on the eve of his crucifixion, he said, and this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. My body, my blood. My body, Hebrews 10.10. The blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10.19. These all come into radical play. Now from this I would say the blood of Jesus poured out is for the forgiveness of sins. For many, and we know that many is all. That is, redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, speaking of Ephesians 1, calls the forgiveness of sins redemption. The body of Jesus is for sanctification. So the blood of Jesus is for redemption. The body of Jesus is for sanctification, which is for our being set apart for God. Through the pouring out of Jesus' blood, we have forgiveness of sins. Through the offering of his body for us, we are completely sanctified. Sanctification is something we have. The Lord can say to us, have sanctification. It's yours. As he says, have faith. It's yours as a gift. It's not a command to believe. It's a gift to be received. Faith is. Sanctified is something we are. But in Hebrews 12, 14, we are also told to pursue sanctification. So there's an aspect of sanctification which is consecration to service. And this is what we may call being set apart for a vocation. And the vocation, in my view, is the vocation of priests of worshipers of God, and of witnesses of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is all about completely qualifying us for this vocation through the purification of our consciousness and through uh, the establishment of our hearts by grace, not by foods, not by dietary legalism, not by giving something up for Lent, but by grace, purely by grace. Hebrews 13.9, the heart is not established by 
foods and dietary legalism and giving up this or giving up that. I personally gave up something for Lent, which is I gave up asceticism, which is giving up things. I gave up giving up things. When I was a young boy and an altar boy, I always used to give up swearing, and that lasted for an hour, not 40 days. Or I gave up candy, and that lasted for sometimes two or three days, amazingly. And I thought I was doing God a service, and of course I wasn't, and I was stupid and young and leaning on the doctrines of men and not the word of God, because the doctrines of men always do something very evil. They nullify the power of the real word of God. Now, I say this because there is a great evil in traditional Christendom today, a great evil being perpetrated by clergy, even all the way to the top and to the high top hats and scepters, evil. I'll tell you sometime, but I don't have the freedom to do it now. I'll tell you sometime where I was in a city in Rome on one of our mission conferences where I experienced the sense of evil and that evil in the form of child molestation, a spirit of it, when I was in a very holy place in a holy city called Rome, and I, I experienced that evil more than I have in any other place except where I was directly confronted with demonic evil. The reason so many people are trending toward evil today is because you cannot resist demonic evil without a shield of faith. And that's why we cannot, you cannot resist demonic evil. And it is demonic evil that mutilates children in the name of gender care, whatever the hell they call it, and any terminology from hell, which is the place of demon spirits. You cannot resist demonic evil. That's why, whether it's in social media or TV or news broadcasts, people are swept along with believing lies because they have no means of resisting demonic evil, which is the lie, without a shield of faith, the belt of truth, the sandals of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of justification, righteousness, and the sword of the spirit. They don't know how to wield it because they don't respect the word of God. Recently, I wasn't going to mention this, but I will, because I have to speak in time. I'm not in a vacuum. Pam and I recently watched a show on TV because I was always interested in detective novels ever since my grandmother was. And Sam Spade was one of the most famous detectives, and, and Humphrey Bogart played him in the movies. It's, it's, they called it noir, detective noir, and so we watched the show about Sam Spade. I'm not going to mention the name of it, but he's, he's now retired, and he's in France, and he's 
Sam Spade. But the villain, after watching this whole miniseries, the villain in this series, and this is where it's all leading up to, is one of the most despicable SOBs you've ever seen depicted in any drama. And he's a monk who murdered six nuns and killed a whole bunch of people indiscriminately. He was an evil, you could see he was, he was always in the shadows and at the end he came out and every, all the good guys were around him and they all had guns and he had the, the girl that was involved in the thing, you know, the perils of Pauline, somebody's got to rescue the girl. And he quoted, you know what he said? This evil SOB quoted this, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And guess what? Everybody in the whole show shot him like 80 times. It was because obviously they always make the monk or the preacher or the pastor or some clerical person misrepresent the word of God. But you know what I saw in that? The actual hatred of that verse, which turned the anger of every main character on it so that they killed him. They shot him about, I don't know how many times, but it was upon the quotation of that verse. Now, are there people that misuse the scriptures? Yes. But the scriptures themselves are sanctified, they're holy. That verse particularly should be at the forefront and on the lips of every Christian preacher. And it's the one that demonic evil hates the most. So it was kind of sad to watch a whole series that was pretty good, mildly interesting, not as good as the Maltese Falcon or all those other good ones. And to see the end climax with demonic evil and it was a great service to me because I saw the verse that the cosmos diabolicus hates the most right now and we're going to hit it in a minute because I want to deal with sanctification and the first fruits the first fruits now I realize if you haven't watched that series I was it was a spoiler I'm sorry but you know through the whole thing that the bad guy is going to be the, the preacher, the monk, the teacher, the nun, or whatever. It's going to be somebody that is religious and a Christian, not, not a Muslim. No, 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 no. They don't ever do anything wrong. And you know that they're going to probably get blown away in the end. So, But I want to consider this panoptic of sanctification. There's an aspect of sanctification which is part of the radical alteration of the human situation which was made effective by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, there is complete sanctification, body, soul, and spirit that's finally accomplished at the parousia, at the moment of the eschaton, we call it, the telos, the end, the radical and permanent alteration of the human condition. It's coming. And it's coming, and it's going to be universal. And it's true that as in Adam all die, and in Christ all will be made alive. Shoot me if you will, but those are the words of God, and that's probably, again, the verse that is the point of the spear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
hated most of all by demonic evil and ignored or misinterpreted by so-called Christians who want to call attention. Oh, they want to call attention to the evil of our time. Better call attention first, right at home, to the evil of the false gospel that falls from your lips every Sunday, preacher. All right. Now, there's a practical sanctification to be attentively pursued in the time in between the two alterations that you and I had nothing to do with. There's nothing we can do to bring about the first the complete sanctification through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Nothing we can do about the complete sanctification that occurs at his parousia, body, soul, and spirit. There is something that God calls us to in the time in between, and it's to conform with the will of God, to conform with his salvific will. That's why Paul says, work out your own salvation or make effective in time your own salvation. For it is God in you, both willing, willing, and doing of his own good pleasure. The reason for this is that God has made Christ Jesus himself to be our sanctification. And that means that as Hebrews 2.11 says, the sanctifier, Jesus Christ, and the sanctified are all of one. All of one entity now. Christ the head and the body, one entity. The sanctifier, Jesus Christ, and the sanctified, his brethren, all of us, are one of one and the same entity. And that's splendidly depicted in Hebrews 2.11. Even our doing of the will of God in the time in between is God in us, Jesus Christ in us, Willing and doing, and us just willing and doing as he wills and does. There's no segregation of our obedience from his obedience, from his ongoing faithfulness. There's no separation of our faithfulness from his ongoing fidelity that is ongoing in the Holy Spirit, the fruit of which is faithfulness. Even our doing of the will of God in this time and between these two radical alterations and sanctifications, we could call it, is Jesus Christ in us. Test yourselves and see if Jesus Christ is in you. We know that sacrifices and offerings as presented under the law are not according to his pleasure. We know that. But we also know that the offering of praise to the God of all grace made in faith is a sacrifice that is according to his pleasure and meets his approval. That's why this year I've called the year of the praise of God. One sacrifice that's acceptable in Hebrews 13, 15, sacrifice of praise from lips that are sanctified. Now, it's time to consider the doctrine of sanctification under the metaphor of the first fruits. And we're going to close with this, but first fruits. Every time I write it, my spell check says it's not a word. So I finally went to the dictionary and found it, and it's in two words first fruits. But it's okay to write first fruits as one word. I want to consider then and follow my thinking here because my thinking is weird. But 
It is connected. I keep getting up every day and spend many hours either reading or studying, and the Holy Spirit, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can say this, gives me certain thoughts that seem to be disconnected. By the time Sunday morning comes along, they're connected. And it's a message that's been created by God. And I'm not saying that everything I'm saying is right, everything I'm saying is God speaking or anything like that. But I am depicting something from the scripture that I know was part was from his direction of the hegemonic spirit. Consider this, first of all, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, and you can look it up on your own, but we ought to thank God always concerning you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord that indescribable love that Brian prayed about. Because God chose you as the first fruits. It says in some translations from the beginning, but it says here, aparke, which means first fruits. God chose you as the first fruits to salvation, soteria, through sanctification by the Spirit and faithfulness that has its origin in the truth. It doesn't say he saved you or sanctified you by your belief in the truth. The idea here is that he saved you by sanctification by the Spirit and the faithfulness that has its origin in Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews 2.11 says expressly and clearly that the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one. That means of one source, that being God the Father, for he eternally begot the eternal Son of God, and he also begot us by his own will and power to be a kind of first fruits. Now, you might want to turn to James 1.18 for this, and if not, get to it in your own study. A kind of first fruits of his creation. A kind of first fruits of his, what's intended here, new creation. A kind of first fruits. Now, again, because spell check would never let me say first fruits, the definition of first fruits, two words, first fruits, in my American Heritage College dictionary, the first meaning is the first gathered fruits of a harvest. And then it says, offered to God in gratitude. That's in a dictionary. The first gathered fruits of a harvest offered to God in gratitude. Now, we've said many times that that, does, that means that our being born of God is a first fruits, meaning there's a universal harvest to come. We're just a sign of a harvest to come, which is every human being. But the second meaning is even more important. It's not metaphorical. The second meaning is actual. And it simply means, first fruit simply means the first results of an undertaking. Call the undertaking the restoration of all things. Call you being sanctified the first results of the restoration of all things. Now, that the first fruits of the salvific harvest are offered to God in gratitude implies that the whole harvest will be to the praise of the glory of God's grace. 
God the Creator will be glorified in all, in spite of the fruitless efforts of men and women to glory in themselves and to bring about their own godhood independently from God. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all is effectively the offering to God in gratitude of the first fruits of sanctified humanity, which is the collective body of Jesus Christ, presently the new covenant community, or called the church. Gratitude. And be grateful is the sixth transcendent precept that I'm putting together. Gratitude is the disposition of the sanctifier. Jesus the sanctifier thanked God in Hebrews 11, in Matthew 11:25. And when he said, a body you've prepared for me, it was with gratitude that he said that. Thank you. So gratitude is the disposition of the sanctifier, the offerer, Jesus Christ. And it's also to be the disposition of the offered, who is Jesus Christ, and also the children to whom God gave him. As Hebrews 2.13 says, quoting Isaiah 8.18, that being the church and then all of humanity. In other words, gratitude is the disposition of those who are offered to God with Jesus Christ, we the children whom God gave to him. Gratitude is the fitting attitude of those who have received grace and are acknowledging it. Therefore, let us have grace, says Hebrews 12, 28, meaning for our vocation. Let us have grace for our vocation. And gratitude to God is those who are receiving from him an immovable and invincible kingdom. Now, I've said that to move to this next level. James and Paul. Usually people like to look at James versus Paul. I'd rather look at James and Paul. James and Paul together. Again, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. This is one where I'm having you look at your Bible a lot today, but I can't apologize for that. James says in 118 famously, God, by his own will, not by you believing, by your will to believe, by your will to repent, by your will to be baptized, by your will to be good, by your will to give up something for 40 days so that you can gorge yourself on Easter. And I, by the way, I'm not really saying anything gets that. If you want to do that, do that. That's fine. That's, that's it. But don't say that's God. And it's a, it's a tradition of men. You want to follow it? That's your business. I don't care. But I learned from my grandfather that, and you all know the story, I'm sure you don't want to hear it again. I don't want to get to that age where I keep telling the same old stories. My dad used to tell the same old story, but I used to listen to him because he, he always added another detail. And so I keep listening, and then I finally got this full story. So I'm not going to tell that story again about the hot dog on Good Friday. Anyways... God, by his own will, brought us forth, that brought us into being or gave us birth is both good, by the word of truth, to be a kind of first fruits. It doesn't say to be first fruits, but a kind of first fruits. The word tina is used there, aparkain tina, means that this is a metaphorical way of speaking. And so he's saying, metaphorically, we're a kind of first fruits. That's what James is saying. Yes, 
It can be speaking metaphorically of a salvific harvest, a resurrection harvest. In fact, Paul uses it the same way in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And let's turn there because I want to hit this very verse and don't shoot me when I get to 15, 22, please, like the show. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24, speaking of first fruits. Paul uses that word first fruits like like the metaphor of a harvest. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24, he calls Christ, or Messiah, who has been bodily raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died or fallen asleep, euphemistically speaking. He is the first to be bodily raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. The apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul, then goes on to explain in his own inspired way in verse 21 for since death came through a man Adam and he explained in Romans there's a Romans 5 12 to 21 it correlates with this passage and that death passed upon all men in Romans 5 12 so also the resurrection of the dead the, pro- the solving of the problem which also has to pass upon all human beings came through a man, the man Christ Jesus, of course. Further, Paul goes on to state, for even as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's not a rationale by which you view people's lives as inconsequential and to be taken at will, of course That's a glorious verse. Life is precious in this time. Life is precious biologically. Life is precious solically. Life is precious spiritually. Life is precious from the beginning in the womb. Life is precious throughout. Life to God is precious. And so... Even as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's with resurrection life. Then and only then does Paul say, but each is made alive, meaning in his own group, his own division, his own battalion, his own order, military metaphor. Christ the firstfruits, he says it again, aparche Christos. Christ, the firstfruits, we're in 1523 now. Then those who belong to Christ at his Parousia, there it is again. Then comes the end, Totelos, when he, Christ, the firstfruits, hands over the kingdom to, of God, to God the Father, when he abolishes every contrary sphere of dominion and every tyrannical sphere of authority and power. For verse 25, in the time in between, he's talking about now, he, Christ the firstfruits, must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy, presently slated for annihilation, is death. In other words, everything comes under Christ's feet except the last enemy, death. That doesn't come under his feet. That gets annihilated. Death gets annihilated. The last enemy, presently slated for annihilation, is death. Verse 27, for that he, God, has put everything under his feet, quoting Psalm 8, 6, 
Septuagint 8, 7, just like the Hebrews author does in Hebrews 2, 5 to 8, for that he has put everything under his feet, it is clear that God the Father who subjects everything to him is accepted. In other words, God the Father isn't placed under his feet. He's the one that places everything under Jesus' feet. So what he's saying here is everything except God is under his feet, salvifically submitted. That's a universal salvation verse if I ever saw one. If you don't believe that, look at verse 28. Now, when everything, tapanta, that's everything, the all things universally, all beings, all things, will have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will subject himself to him, the Father, who subjected everything to him, so that what? God will be all in all. God himself will be in all that is submitted to him, all of creation. God will be salvifically all in all, in all of them. So first fruits here, how did I do that? First fruits here is used in both senses, metaphorically, as the first gathered fruits of a harvest offered to God in gratitude. That's you. And then secondly, actually, as the first results of an undertaking, which is God's new creation of all things and of all beings, the alteration of the human and universal condition, we are the first fruits of an undertaking called the new creation of all things. Look, I'm making all things new, Revelation 21, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, that's the new creation in its first fruits. That in part is what our sanctification means. We are the first to hope in Messiah, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.12. We are the first to hope in the Messiah, meaning the church is the first to hope in the Messiah. The rest of the world is yet to follow. That's what it means. First, indicating more to come. That is, all who will come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the truth that's embodied or incarnate in Jesus, the Son of God. You realize, of course, that Ephesians 4.13 says all humanity is going to come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. Because it's God's will, what? That all men be saved, all human beings be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul's saying here, in agreement with 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, that everyone's going to come to the unity of the faith, and everyone's going to come to the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of the truth as it's embodied in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 4.13 foresees the eschaton when we will all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. We cannot come to the unity of the faith without being born of God, for as the Scripture says, the one that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 1 John 5.1a, and in 1 Corinthians 12.3, it is impossible to say, that is, in faith, it is impossible to be believing in him and, and say Jesus is Lord except by the regenerating Holy Spirit. You can only say in faith Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. I'm saying it today, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord. I'm saying that in faith because I'm saying that in the Holy Spirit. I couldn't say that if the Holy Spirit 
didn't allow me to say it in faith. I could not say it in faith, that is, unless it's the Holy Spirit. It's impossible, on the other hand, by the Holy Spirit to say the name of Jesus Christ in derision or with disrespect or as an expression of disgust or revulsion. It's impossible to say Jesus is cursed by the Spirit. You're not in the Holy Spirit, operative in the Holy Spirit, in practical sanctification to use the name of Jesus that way. Again, we are the first to hope in Messiah. All the rest of humanity is to follow. In fact, in this year of the praise of God, I should mention that Ephesians 1.12 says more fully, so that we who are the first to hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. So, closing number two. The sense in which sanctification is intended in Hebrews 10.10, our focus, is the complete sanctification which was brought about for us by the doing of the will of God by Jesus, which culminated in the offering of his body once and for all. This, that'll be a thesis in our next 88 theses from Hebrews. This sanctification is a part of the complete alteration of the human situation brought about by God in Jesus Christ. You had nothing to do with it. Neither did I. Nobody else did. Only Jesus Christ, the one who sanctifies, is one with those whom he sanctified. That is, all of those who belong to him now and ultimately all humankind as well as all created reality. God, the creator of all, is glorified when he brings the all, tapanta, of his creation to completion in his new creation, which is brought about by the once and for all sacrifice and offering of Jesus Christ our Lord, the Lord of every human being, whether acknowledged by them or not. He is the Lord of every human being. There used to be a horribly evil doctrine that said you have to make Jesus Lord to be saved. Evil, evil, evil doctrine. Evil doctrine. Got to get rid of that one before you start hollering at the White House or the Senate or the Congress. I like what Acts 2.36 says. God the Holy Spirit made him Lord in his resurrection. Lord of every man. So whether a person believes it or not, acknowledges it or not, or curses the name of Jesus or not, Jesus is the Lord of that man, the Lord of that woman, head of that woman, the head of that man. Big surprise coming. Big surprise. So the sense in which sanctification is used in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 has to do not primarily with the radical alteration of the human and creational situation, it has to do with the inevitable alteration of the human and creational condition. That's our hope. In Hebrews 12, 14, sanctification has to do with the willing presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. In Romans 12, 1, as those who belong to Jesus Christ in Romans 1, 6 and know it. In order to no longer be made in the mold of the present passing and evil age, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind and made according to the specifications of God in anticipation of future world and the age that will never pass away. 
in any and all cases, the sanctification of all human beings is a function and result of God's faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, Paul says, More fully may the God of peace sanctify you completely and preserve you intact, spirit, soul, and body to the parousia. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. A little further down the line in Hebrews 10.23, it also says, let's hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering because faithful is he who promised. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to let the word of God, and it went forth in many levels and many layers today in a panoptic of sanctification. But we thank you that everything goes and all the glory goes to Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion both now and forever. Grant this assembly to tell us thy phalanx, the grace and the establishment of the heart to the degree that we do the four things that are necessary for our practical sanctification. One, that we entrust our spirit to you, O God of truth. Two, that we commit our souls to you, Father, our faithful creator. Three, that we present our bodies to you, Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great archpriest. And four, that we give our hearts to you, Father, that we may be taught of you continually, taught by you, for as the scripture says, they shall all be taught of God. And by that, you, Father, sanctify us by your word. And your word is truth. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.